All right, brothers and sisters, at this time, we are going to resume our series on Genesis. We've been away from it for two, two, three, I don't know, a little while now, a little while now. But today, we're going to make up for lost time. We're going to read the entire flood narrative and uh, see what God has for us in these verses, in these many verses. So we're going to be reading Genesis 6, 9 through 8, 19. I invite you to follow along with me, either in your print Bible or with the screen. The Lord's servant Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us thus about this episode. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you, to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. 
And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. 
In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creeping things that, that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every, th every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this episode that recounts your judgment and your salvation. Grant, O oh Lord, that we would indeed draw the lessons from it that you have placed there. And help us to believe, help us to obey. For Christ's sake, we ask this. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, so as a brief recap of where we've been, because it's been a little while, it's important to remember when we're studying the book of Genesis that it was written originally to the people of Israel who had recently entered into covenant with the Lord, and now that they are wandering, they are getting filled in the backstory to help round out their understanding of who God is, who they are, the way the world is, and the way they should live in this world in light of all of that. And so what we have seen thus far in Genesis is that God has declared the creator of all things. In the space of seven days, he makes all things. He establishes a creation ordinances as he creates things. He doesn't just leave things willy-nilly. He, he builds into the DNA of creation, so to speak, a certain way th things should relate, how they should operate, how things should go. He institutes the, the ordinance of marriage, for example, and establishes that marriage is between one male and one female. And he establishes the principle of work. And he establishes the principle of the Sabbath, etc., etc. But then we see that sin enters the human experience in chapter 3. And it's all downhill from there. And we saw most recently as we studied this book that chapter 6, 1 to 8 spells out what had happened as sin had escalated on the face of the earth so that the circumstance became such that God decided to make an end of all flesh. And at the very end of the preceding section, Noah is introduced as having found favor in God's sight. We must remember that the backdrop of the flood story is the spread of sin over the world. That every single person is corrupt. Every institution of God's has been corrupted and defiled. Everything has been degraded. And so the book of Genesis presents 
the flood story as both a story of judgment, but a story of salvation. And that's the same way the New Testament interprets this story. So keeping in mind the principle of the analogy of faith, Scripture interprets Scripture. When you're wondering how should I interpret a passage, look and see how other passages of Scripture interpret it. And the uniform teaching of the New Testament is that this is a story of God's judgment and of God's salvation, and it inspires us to live faithfully in the midst of wickedness. Now, this passage, we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with the, the factoids about the passage, but needless to say, it comes under great criticism from the world. Uh, there are people who question the historicity of it and uh, all the little details. Was this a global flood, truly global? Was it localized? Uh, did, if the waters were over all the mountains, was it, re- was it over Mount Everest? You know, that's really, really high. And, and we don't need to argue those kind of points because those kind of mountains likely emerged as the flood is receding. But one thing that I like to point out is as many stories in the early portions of Scripture have, there are corresponding stories like this in, in the religious belief systems of, of peoples all over the world. It, it's, it's almost as if there was a historical event that, that common ancestors shared in common, but then as time and distance and their own local customs and tradition took place, it morphed. But all these local tribal stories from the jungles of South America to the ancient Near East to Asia, all these stories of an ancient flood seem to be echoes of something that happened. And here we have the recounting of it. So take heart, brothers and sisters, this happened. Now, this, this was truly a catal- an eschatological event. Uh, understand that when God sent the flood on the earth, it brought about the end of thousands of years of human civilization. It's, it's summarized in short form, the, the genealogy from Adam to, to Noah, but w- with lifespans of 900 years, and especially if these are just the highlighted uh, descendants of these people, um, there's a huge portion of human history that takes place before the flood. And here, it is wiped out. And the eschatological significance of this, that this was the end of an age. This is why Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, when he's speaking about the coming destruction of the world, the coming judgment of the world, he hearkens back to this in Matthew and in Luke's recounting of the Olivet Discourse. Just as Noah's flood was the end of one age, so too will the coming destruction be the end of another age. This flood was a big deal. But then we have after the flood the fact that we live life. The whole story of redemption is told with the backdrop of impending judgment. You have to understand that every day 
Every day since Noah stepped off the flood, stepped off the boat, we have lived in light of coming judgment. The whole story of the Bible presupposes the fact of coming judgment. In Acts 17, you see it's the cornerstone of Paul's preaching. When he's in Athens preaching to the crowds, and he reminds them that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Judgment comes. In Romans 1.18, we are told that the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men. So we should see, brothers and sisters, with an eschatological perspective, accidents don't just happen. Every time there's a localized flood, every time there's a fire, every time tragedy strikes mankind, you should see these as the, as the drippings of God's wrath and judgment poured out on the wickedness of mankind. And I say that in light of the fact that my bathroom faucet has started dripping. Okay, the dripping is the sign of a problem that's going to get worse. And God's wrath is present tense revealed. So it's not that God is judging people particularly for, it's that any time there is destruction like this, it is a sign of pending judgment against the world. In fact, in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Paul tells us that because of the wickedness of men, the wrath of God is coming. So Paul says in one verse, it's present tense. In another verse, it's future. So just like here, the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of sin is revealed. It's promised. But remember, there was like a 100, 120 year gap from when God makes a decision to the time it's carried out. A good long while. But this theme of the Christian life being lived out in the, in the, with the backdrop, against the backdrop of coming judgment, it's, it's picked up on by Christian writers and theologians throughout history. And, and perhaps most famously, it's the backdrop of Pilgrim's Progress. What's the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress. The guy Christian is told to flee. What is he told to flee? The city of destruction. And the whole journey, it keeps coming back to fleeing destruction, running away from destruction, running to life. Now against this backdrop that's here in Genesis, where Genesis 6 one through eight sort of culminates the story of the descent of mankind into just wretched rebellion. The Bible keeps the story of humanity at that level. The Bible never presents humanity as just pristine and beautiful and, and the world as just this lovely place. The world is always presented as being in rebellion 
against God. And against this backdrop then, Jesus in Matthew 5 uses three metaphors to describe how his people are to be. Three metaphors in Matthew 5, 13 and 14. The salt of the earth, the light of the world, and a city on a hill. Each of these three metaphors highlights something, but the point is there's a juxtaposition of what his people are in contrast to the backdrop of the milieu of everyone else. There's the world and its wickedness and rebellion, the darkness, the darkness in which they dwell and in which they delight, according to John, and God's people who love the light and indeed in Christ are the light. So there's this juxtaposition throughout human history. God's people in contrast to the wickedness of the world. But in real time human experience, as God's people go through life, we find ourselves often shaken, not stirred, and oftentimes battered and appearing to be about to be broken. And this passage offers us great hope. It offers us great hope. In the midst of judgment, in the midst of the continual, inevitable increase of the display of God's judgment against the wickedness of man, God brings his people through the tribulation. So no matter what you're going through, there is hope because God never forgets his own. Let's, let's see how that's spelled out in this passage. First, um, there's, there's three things real quick that, that we're going to talk about. First is that what does it look like to be righteous in the midst of unrighteousness? This passage actually kind of gives us a clue. So what does it look like to be righteous in the midst of unrighteousness? Second, what are the circumstances surrounding the Lord's judgment? And third, how does the Lord preserve his remnant? So let's look at the first. What does righteousness look like in the midst of wickedness? Well, look at verse, look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 6. Now, it's important to remember that the first word about Noah is not verse 9, it's verse 8. It's super important. Every commentator observes this. The first word spoken about Noah is that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So this is important. The starting point for Noah is God's grace. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, it is not the case that Noah pulled himself up by the bootstraps and earned something from the Lord. It starts out, he finds favor. He's the recipient of grace. And isn't that the case for how all spiritual life starts? You find grace in the eyes of the Lord. But then verse 9 <coughs> tells us something then about the man. And we are told three things that are germane for his character. First, it says he was righteous. He was a righteous man. 
Now, what does that mean? Okay? The, this is the first mention of righteousness in the Bible. And so all future ideas, pictures, so to speak, associations of what it constitutes righteousness, hearken back then to Noah. What, what does righteousness look like? Well, first, basically, this is a vertical term. It's a covenantal term. <coughs> righteousness is a word that's associated with conformity to the covenant. Have you ever wondered why in verse 18, it says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. It says, I will establish my covenant, not I will make my covenant. If you look ahead a few chapters in regards to Abraham, God makes a covenant, but then he keeps along the way saying, I'm going to establish my covenant. What's the deal? Establishing does not refer to the act of initiation. It never in the Old Testament refers to the initiation of covenant. Establish refers to shoring it up, making something firm, standing it up. In other words, it's being reiterated and God is going to underscore how committed he is to the covenant. But it's not referring to the initiation of a covenant. You see, the very fact that Noah is righteous beforehand, it's referring to the fact that he was in covenant with the Lord already. Having found favor with the Lord, he was righteous in the eyes of the Lord. And what does righteousness look like? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us what this righteousness looked like. In the great hall of faith, we're told that by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir to the righteousness that is by faith. So when it says that Noah was righteous, it means basically two things. He believed God and he obeyed God. His belief is underscored in the fact of what the Bible tells us, but then his commitment to obeying is, is underscored four times in this passage. I tried to enunciate it, to put a little verbal oomph on it every time I read it, but four times it points out that Noah did what God commanded him. Belief and obedience. This is what Jesus tells us constitutes love. You cannot claim to love God if you don't believe him and if you don't obey him. Jesus says that. Love in the Bible is not positive regard, feelings of strong sentiment. It's love and obedience. That's loving God. So he loved the Lord as evidenced by his belief and his obedience. So right here you see what the juxtaposition looks like of righteousness in the midst of unrighteousness. That the righteous, in the midst of a world gone crazy, first and foremost, believe God. 
not just believe in him that he is, but he actually believed God's word when it was given to him. And then, out of belief in that word, he proceeded to obey. And here it must be remembered that he was obeying in the face of what would have been a heap of scorn. Whatever you feel about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, that, that young man has a heap of scorn. And the whole world would have been mocking, ridiculing, rejecting, harassing, belittling, marginalizing, ostracizing, all these words because the world was in bold-faced, open, defiant rebellion against God. And here is one man believing that the end comes. And then he obeys. And what does that look like for us? In the midst of the, the cries and the, and the degradation of our age, what does it look like for us to be righteous? Well, it looks like the same old story. Believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world? And do you believe that, it, that the judgment could come? Jesus tells us that just as it was back then, where people were eating and drinking and working and being married and that it was life as normal. And then in a moment, the flood came. I think the closest modern history we can get, we can, uh, is, is the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the in 80s, 60s. Where in just a moment, everything they knew was overthrown. It's incredible to read that destruction. I know some of you have been there to see it. It's incredible that it was wiped off the map. But if that's true, if you believe it, does your life reflect any degree of urgency to tell, to mortify your own sin, to, to prepare yourself? Any urgency and obedience. Do you obey the word of the Lord? It's the same old story. God's commandments are never unreasonable. So not only is there the covenantal language of righteousness that describes Noah, there's the horizontal language of blamelessness. He was blameless in his generation. To be blameless refers to being without defect. Now it does not mean that he was perfect, that he was sinless. As we will see, he, he sinned. He was a sinner. But what it does mean is that with a sincere heart, with a good faith effort, he tried to obey the will of the Lord and live a holy life in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of other people. He tried to walk in the way of godliness. But then, it sums it up relationally. He walked with God. Only one other person Enoch before him walked with God. So Noah walks with God. He lived in daily communion 
with his creator. So he wasn't just in covenant as a, as a vassal to a king, though he was. But he was in daily communion with his Lord as a friend. A picture of what Adam and Eve were meant to enjoy and what we were meant to enjoy forever. And a promise of what we will have. He walked with God. Daily communion. So what it looks like to be righteous. What it looks like to be holy. What it looks like to be God's people. Juxtaposed against the backdrop of evil. It's very much the same now as it was then. Which is why this story is still relevant. Because it explains what is still true for us. But then the second, the circumstances surrounding God's judgment. Okay, God's judgment here after patiently bearing with the wicked is swift, it is fierce, it is final. One of the things that commentators point out and observe is that in contrast to the modern trend of telling everybody's story, you know, every offender has to have a story. Every, every bad guy has to have their story shared so that way you feel sympathetic for the bad guy. Uh, every, every villain needs to be shown to, to, to be uh, you know, it's not really as bad as they think, you know, most popularly with the play Wicked. How the Wicked Witch of the West is presented as kind of a misunderstood anti-hero. Heroine. Heroine. Okay. But here, what we're given is after God has patiently endured for thousands of years. And then after giving warning. And indeed it says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. So that means that Noah wasn't just hammering an ark. He was proclaiming the coming judgment. After patience. When judgment comes. The perspective of the wicked are irrelevant. There's no story here about the, the terror of the perishing as they quickly realize the waters are rising. There's no mention of any emotional distress about Noah, what about my mom and my dad and my grandparents and my brothers and my sisters? None of that is mentioned because in God's eschatological judgment, the only perspective is the perspective of God. And so this comes on the heels of his patient, proclaimed judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not promised. O oh, sinner, if you hear my voice and are not calling on the name of Christ, turn today. And come to the one who will save you. Who will release you from the sentence of death. Because the day comes when your excuses, your pleas will not matter. 
And there will only be the certain finality of perfect, swift, and fierce judgment. So come. Come to him who offers life eternal even now. Flee to him. He is patient. He is gracious. Come to the Lord. But as I said, every storm, every fire, every earthquake, every volcano, every crash, <coughs> every tsunami is the dripping of God's wrath revealed. And human sin added to it makes this world a quite tumultuous place. And many of us live our lives being rocked to and fro by the tumult of the world around us. And I want you to know that you will set yourself up for heartache if you think the promise of the Bible is that God will snap you away from trouble so that you don't even have to witness it. In contrast, the teaching of the Bible is that God saves his people through the midst of troubles. Indeed, he preserves a remnant by the building of an ark. Now this ark is not a mighty seagoing vessel. It's basically a floating box pitched with, with, with pitch inside and out to make sure it's waterproof. But if you look at its dimensions, its shape is basically the shape of a giant coffin. Brothers and sisters, the New Testament makes reference to the ark as God's vehicle of salvation. When you come to Christ, you come to the ark of God. He is the one who saves, who delivers from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one who ensures that all of God's promises to you, the same promises that were given to Noah, Jesus is the one who makes sure that all those promises get realized. So in a world where troubles abound, Christ is there. And if you're in Christ, you're in the ark, so to speak. And it must have been a crazy ride. If you think about it, they're in a box and the waters are rising, eventually there's enough water to lift it off the ground. But imagine the tumult. It's, it doesn't just say that it's raining. It says the, the, the fountains of the deep open up. So it's like massive geysers are exploding everywhere. This is truly cataclysmic. So this box is swirling and bumping into mountains, bumping into things. Can you imagine the terror of everything inside? But God preserved them. And after the flood had been on the earth for six months, it says, God remembered Noah in chapter 8, verse 1. That is the hinge of this story. That God remembers. Six or so months of being in a boat, tight quarters, animals, it stinks. Daily duties, there is no soft easy chair to sit in six months of being dark because the only window is at the top six months 
How long will this last? How long can we take this? And there's hope. God remembered Noah. What have you been going through? Have you been going through chaos? Have you been going through heartache and hardship? Have you been going through the drippings of the outpoured wrath of God on this world? And you feel like you can barely carry on. Remember, if you are in Christ, you are in the ark of God. And he remembers you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he will bring you out on the other side. Because that is the kind of God we serve. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this story. For how it serves as a reminder and a warning of coming judgment. But for how it serves as a beautiful reminder that throughout the outpoured judgment on this world, we are saved by the vehicle of salvation, the ark of God, which is Christ and his righteousness applied to us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for us, for giving us safe passage through this life, and for ensuring by your spirit that all of God's promises to us are realized. Lord, buoy our faith when we are growing tired and weary and impatient, even as Mo Noah was impatient at the end to just get out of the boat. Buoy us with the reminder that you are working out your purposes for us. We ask this in Christ's name.